Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Good morning and welcome to First Day. What a glorious day it is to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I'm glad you're in the house today. And for those of you that are part of our growing online family, welcome. And I want to say a special blessing to those who join us around the world, including Pastor Zhang and family outside of Seoul, Korea, who watch us every week. Thank you for the beautiful decorative bell that uh, you gave us here. By the way, your daughter is an amazing young lady. God bless you. Kamsamda. That's my version of the Korean. Thank you there. But, uh... <laughs> By the way, speaking of this bell, I did think of a good uh, use for this bell during the service, and that is this. If I don't get enough hearty amens at a certain point in the message, I'll just kind of ring my own bell. So That's why it's there. Thank you, Pastor John. Five things to hold on to forever in the Christian life. Now, there are some things that we definitely need to let go of. Like certain fashion trends. Ladies, you can relax. I will only pick on us men. You say, why, Pastor? Well, because I'm not as dumb as I look, actually. And, uh, and besides, I have nine daughters, so I know. Now, to be sure, mock turtlenecks, patterned vests, printed sweatshirts, and, of course, ugly Christmas sweaters are super cool. I agree, guys. But it's time to enter the 2020s. Get rid of them, okay, please. And for you younger dudes, I love you. But seriously, man buns and saggy pants got to go. I mean, they're, they got to go. Now, they're not only fashions that we need to get rid of, but we need to get rid of some attitudes and actions. Like the constant need, you can take the stupid picture off. <laughs> Come on. And, uh, like the constant need for more things. For some of you folks, really, you need to stop. You don't need any more stuff. Quit buying stuff. It's ridiculous. And bad money habits. I mean, spending more than you make, credit card debt, not tithing toss, that nasty habits in the garbage can. Get rid of those. And like what famous American science fiction writer Ray Bradbury said, learning to let go should be learned before learning to get. But then there are some things you should hold on to. Like my very dependable gas-powered car. I'm holding on to my gas guzzler, I'm telling you. Now, I know everybody's talking about electric. I even heard of one guy that decided he was going to develop an electric car, but he found it didn't have a great range because he always kept it plugged in. But, um, now, 
not long enough extension cord. And also, I'm holding on to my coffee percolator. Now, I know there's drip, there's pour over, there's French press, there's cold brew, there's espresso, there's steeped. But give me a cup of perked coffee. There's nothing like it. I'm holding on to my perked coffee. By the way, did you know that there is an entire book in the Bible dedicated to coffee? It's true. Hebrews. And I, and I am also holding on to my bacon. Now, I hear some brilliant politicians up in Sacramento pass some law last year that has reduced the availability and drastically increased the price of bacon. That's it for me. That's it. Last straw. You're going to have to pry my bacon right out of my cold, dead hands, I'm telling you right now. Yes, there is in life some things we need to let go of, but there are some things that we need to hold on to and hold on to forever. You know, the key to a healthy, happy, fulfilling life is knowing the difference. And that's even more true in our morals and in our scriptural convictions. For example, we must always hold on to our purpose in life. Waking up every day with a clarity of mind, that is such an important way to start every day. I think we need to hold on to a sense of humor. You know, once you lose your ability to laugh at a situation and even more importantly, at yourself, life just loses all meaning. We need to hold on to our family and our friends. You know, life is short. Our health is precious. We need to hold on to both. And I think we need to hold on to our dreams. Looking forward to things in life is really one of life's greatest joys. But the Scripture clearly gives us five things that we should hold on to forever. Why? Because when you lose any one of these, life is going to get very empty. Amen? That's the time to say amen. Good night. All right. Let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you. And Lord, it's good to hear these precious saints laughing, Lord. Life can be so hard and so difficult. Thank you for the joy we felt, Lord, your presence. Oh, Holy Spirit, please come. My heart is full, brimming, Lord. I feel like I'm going to just explode, Lord, with all the things that are in my soul. I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you will take the things that I say and even the things I don't say, that you will preach to our fears as we sing. You will preach to our lack of faith. Lord, you will just preach to us. But all the things that I don't say or do say, the Holy Spirit, you will use it for your glory. Help us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our career, our life, our bodies, our Relationships are constantly changing. It is important then to learn what to hold on to and doggedly make sure they don't change and things that we need to let go of. We've called this series that we've been in the Commands of Christ. That's because there's over 900 verses in the New Testament that God wants us all to follow. They are commands, they're not just suggestions. 
Now, over a dozen times in the New Testament, God says to hold something. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, Stand fast, hold the traditions. These are godly traditions which you have been taught. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, Hold on to eternal life. The idea of holding or gripping onto something requires that what we believe is beneficial to hold on to. Holding, therefore, is spiritual determination. It is a mindset to hold on to something as long as we're on this earth. Often God says, hold fast. That means keep a firm grip on the truth. Keep a firm grip on the faith. The Greek word for hold is kateko. Kateko is used in the original language as taking possession of property. It is also used in a nautical setting, meaning hold one's course. It's used in Acts 27, for example, where the storm-tossed ship held its course. Hold your course. Or, hold on, take possession of what you have. Seventeen times in the New Testament, the word kateko, the Greek word, of which the New Testament was written in, as you know, seventeen times it is used. So let's prayerfully look into several of those times. Five things to hold on to forever. Five spiritual qualities to hold on with a firmness of purpose. Number one, hold forth the word of life. Hold Fourth, the word of life. That is to trumpet the truth. In Philippians 2 and verse 15, that ye may be blameless, harmless, as a child of God, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life. Love that description of the Bible, the word of life. Over 25 different metaphors in Scripture for the Bible. The word of His grace, the word of faith, the word of truth. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. And I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Hold forth the word of life. Friends, we are not depositories. We are dispensers of God's grace. We are not here just to enjoy the gospel, but to announce and announce the gospel. It is not a secret to be hidden, but a story to to be heralded. The phrase, hold forth, is an allusion, most commentaries think, to the towers which were built at the entrances of ancient Roman harbors, the early lighthouses. They would keep fires burning up there in the top that would direct ships into the port safely. And so God says, I want you to be a lighthouse. I want you to shine as lights in the world God keeps us here as lighthouses. That means if you're alive, God's got a job for you and I. Somehow, some way, we are to be holding forth the word of life, which is the Bible. And where do we do such a thing? Well, look at that verse again. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, why did God put the home church in Lodi, California? Here's why. God put us here as a greenhouse for the saved and a lighthouse for the lost. 
But we won't be either of those if we don't obey. And notice one of these days, friends, God says we're going to give an account. Look at verse 16. In the day of Christ, in the day of Christ, that's the day of His coming, we will find whether we have run in vain or labored in vain. That is, one of these days in eternity, we are going to give an account for how we've run and how we have labored. That is, how we have held forth the word of truth, the light of God, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Now, folks, you don't take a lighthouse and put it in the middle of a lighted stadium. No, you put it on some dark, windswept shore as a warning to others to not shipwreck their lives. Too many Christians today, I'm afraid, are getting this bunker mentality. Especially out here in California, here's what we've noticed. We've noticed that many good people, understandably, are tired of all the left-wing craziness, all the crime out here. And so they say, we're going to move wherever they want to move. They just want to move. They want to get away from all of it. Well, statistics show that the number one place that Californians are moving to, as far as America, is Texas. 300 Californians a day are moving to Texas. Can you imagine? But now this verse says the exact opposite. God says you don't go shine in the where the light is. You are to shine in the midst of the darkness where the danger is. You know what we really need is exactly the opposite. We need 300 believers a day moving from Texas to California to help shine the light here in this day. So many so that we call it Texacali. Amen? That's an amen right there. Amen. All right. <laughs> Ring the bell, brother. You'd say, well, it's just not easy here in California, folks. God didn't say that our Christian life is going to be a walk in the park. But Paul did not live to please himself. In fact, if a light is going to shine, it must burn. And if it's going to burn, it has to be consumed. No candle ever burns without being consumed. And that's why Paul says that we're to hold forth the light. It's going to cost you. You're going to be burning, and it's going to consume you. But do it anyway. And then in verse 16, he seems to change the illustration. He begins to allude to a wreath given, a laurel wreath, kind of a little crown, to the winners in an Olympic game. Notice what he says, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have run in vain or labored in vain. All of Paul's hard work for God he counted as a privilege, but he didn't want it to mean nothing. He wanted to make sure that he got an award, as it were, a crown for his hard work. The great apostle reminded the wonderful Greek church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown? There's that word again, that crown, our laurel wreath of rejoicing. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? He said, when we get to heaven, the crown we wear is going to be how we help somebody else find Christ. That's the crown we wear. Did we do something to help somebody? For example, through events like Ministry Week this past week. Through all the giving and praying and the going. Now, I know some of us feel like witnessing is outside of our comfort zone. Even pastors feel that. But always remember the one tried and true plan. 
And that is to simply give your testimony. Everybody has a testimony, and nobody can refute it. There's just no way. And anybody can give their testimony in two minutes or less by remembering the timeline. If you look at the way that time is designated, there's B.C. and A.D. And so if you want to give your testimony real quickly, all you have to do is to remember B.C. or before Christ. Before you became a Christian, give a couple of bullet points of what your life was like before you found Christ. Oh, I tell you what, my life just seems so aimless and confused. You've taken about 30 seconds there. And then give the time that you received Christ, A.D., after your decision for Christ. Then what you do is you just say, but then someone showed me a verse. Someone showed me a truth that changed the rest of my life. And then after your decision. You just talk about B.C., then the moment you accepted Christ, what was the verse or truth that got a hold of your mind, and then after the decision. B.C. and then A.D., then give a couple of bullet points of how your life has benefited after receiving Christ. I am telling you, it did everything for my marriage. It did everything for my purpose in life. In two minutes, you can give your whole testimony. You can do this. And nobody can refute that because you may not remember everything about some false cult or some strange religion, but one thing you always know is your testimony. And you've got one. I hope you do. And so, Christians, you've got this. I want you to go out there and give your testimony. Somebody some says to you, boy, you're sure happy today. So I'll tell you what. There was something that changed my whole outlook on life. You know, you can't make somebody eat the oats, but you can salt the oats. I'll guarantee you, you do that, they're going to bite. Number one, hold forth the word of life. Number two, hold confidently your salvation. And that's what Paul told Timothy in chapter 1, verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some of putting away have made, concerning faith have made shipwreck. Now one paraphrase says it this way, cling to your faith in Christ. Cling to your faith or the faith of Christ. Holding means keeping. By the way, if you're wanting to know what the original grammar is, it is in the present tense, meaning always, continually hold your faith. It doesn't mean if you don't hold it, you're not saved. It just means hold the truth of it as something that's valuable to you. Faith in this text is the whole body of revealed truth about the gospel. Remain loyal to the Bible. Remain loyal to Christ. Remain loyal to the church of Christ. Never give in, for example, to the popular deconstruction movement. I don't really understand it. We just used to call them backsliders. But let me tell you something. If your faith can be so easily deconstructed, I really doubt if it was ever constructed. The deconstructing movement? What do you mean? You're leaving Christianity? How crazy. God said, hold on to it. Pastor Timothy's first responsibility and ours is to always remain faithful to Scripture. Paul kept hammering away at this theme. Look at 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Make sure it's a good fight. Don't just pick fights. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold, there's that word again, on what? Eternal life. It means just surround your mind, your heart, your spirit 
with the fact that you are born again. Hold on to that truth. In all of life's battles, always hold on to the fact that God and good will ultimately triumph over evil. And at the end of the day, just knowing that you have trusted Jesus for your salvation is the only thing that matters. I have the privilege as being a pastor for many years in this area of speaking at the celebration of life services for many believers. I often remind people that ultimately, the only thing that really matters in life is this. Have you trusted Christ for your salvation? It's the only thing that matters on that final day. You say, well, I built a great business. Well, that's admirable. But did you lay hold on eternal life? And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, for everything else you've done, make sure you've laid hold on eternal life. You say, well, I've been a sportsman. I've climbed every high peak in the world. Impressive. But did you lay hold on eternal life? You say, well, I'm a family man. I've got a wonderful family. That's great. It is. It's incredibly good. But friend, did you lay hold on eternal life? Because when we're having that service, there is only one thing that really matters. Did you lay hold on eternal life? Do you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life? Years ago, I was in a large church. I was an assistant pastor in Southern California. They decided to apply for a license to get a radio station. I think now as then, you have to apply to the FCC and you have to do different things. One of the things they required were that we would go out and interview people in the community. So we were um, told to do that. And so I was happily did so. But I figured if I was going to interview people, I might as well use that as an opportunity to witness. One of the most unique interviews was with a local, older, Irish Catholic priest. He was kind enough to answer the few questions that we were supposed to ask. Well, I decided I would take the chance to actually ask him about his eternal salvation. And so I asked him, I said, Father, if you died, do you know that you would go to heaven? Now, his answer surprised me. And to this day, I remember it. Especially for a person of his extensive theological training. He looked at me, and in a no-matter-of-fact way, he said, nobody can know you're going to heaven. I was blown away. I was. Now, I will say he did not repudiate or reject Christ. I didn't expect him to. But he had accepted the sad and deceived narrative, an incredibly false concept, that nobody can know you're going to heaven. And I said, sir... Um, would you mind if I just shared with you one verse of Scripture? He, I paused for a moment. He said, okay. Now, the verse I shared with him is the same verse I'm going to share with you right now. Here's what it is. 1 John 5 and verse 13. And I read it to him and pointed out a few things. These things, the Bible, have I written to you, the written Scripture, that believe faith, on the name of the Son of God, that's Jesus, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, I took a few moments to highlight those words, you may know. You can know. 
Now, I wish I could say that he accepted the unmistakable truth of Scripture that when you personally accept Jesus Christ, you can know that you're going to heaven. But what I do remember is it was a profound moment, and I remember it still to this day. And it's my prayer and hope that someday I'll see him in heaven. Because I continued for a few moments. Here's what I said. I said, now, I want to read that last part again. It says, if you believe on the name of the Son of God, that you can wish that you go to have eternal life. Does it say that? He said, no. I said, well, does it say that you may think that you have eternal life? He said, no. I said, it says no. K-N-O-W. No. The Bible says we can actually know that we have eternal life. Now, sometimes people say, oh, well, Christians are just so gullible. They just go on emotions and some fanciful thing. No. We are not at all. In fact, we are knowing something because we're depending, as it says, on the written Scripture. But also, there's something else we're depending on, and that is we are depending on the witness of the Holy Spirit. I want you to go back in 1 John chapter 5. We'll put it on the screens here. But go back a few verses, and I want you to show you something the Apostle John gives as a wonderful basis. Verse 9. If, the Greek word there can be translated since, since everybody receives the witness of men. That's a known fact. The witness of God is greater than that. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. There is one very important way that you can know that you're on your way to heaven. You can know it. Not only that you believe what the Scripture says about Jesus, but that you have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Now, since we believe the witness of people, we should believe the witness of the Holy Spirit. This winter, I got some upper respiratory issues. It turned into an infection, or at least I thought it was. I didn't want to go into the doctor, and so I called an online doctor. Great. It was convenient, for sure. And so he came on the little screen there, and I think he was based in New England. I had never met him. I had no idea who he was. He listened to me. He kindly wrote a prescription, which I never saw. He then sent it to a pharmacist, which I've never met. The person behind the counter, the assistant, fulfilled the prescription I'd never met before. Then I got this prescription. I couldn't even pronounce the word of what he gave me. But guess what? I took it. And it worked. Now... Why did I do that? Because I believe the witness of men. I figured he was a doctor. It said he was. I figured all that. And so I just accepted it on faith. I ingested it, and it worked. Why do we do what we do? Many times because we just believe what people tell us. Now, we all receive the witness of men. Don't tell me then that we can't receive the witness of God. If you want to, you can. Human resistance is so silly. God has given the witness of the Spirit into us. Hold on to eternal life. Hold on to the fact of Scripture and the witness of the Spirit. Now, if you were to come to me and say, well, now, Pastor, there's no such thing as online doctors. There's no such thing as medicine. There's no such thing as anything that will help you get feel better. And what you said doesn't work. I would say, well, all I know is I received it into me and it works. I'm promising you it works. I've got the witness within me. 
And so God said, hold on to your eternal faith through the Scripture which He's given and through the witness of the Holy Spirit. It's been said a Christian with a testimony is never at the mercy of an unbeliever with an argument because he has the witness in himself. Hold forth the word of life. Hold confidently to your salvation. And number three, hold fast a sound doctrine. That's the third thing. Hold on to these five things forever. Solid, strong teaching. 2 Timothy 1.13, hold fast the sound, the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. Hold fast the sound, the form of sound words. It means retain the standard. Hold on to Scripture. Be stable. Be true blue. Be biblical in your theology. Keep it in your mind. Keep it in your soul. Keep it in your spirit. Have a safekeeping for it. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, always hold fast to the Word of God. Because he said, opinions are going to come and opinions are going to go. But if you have that Bible inside of you, it's going to be your constant roadmap. I'm always hearing of new things out there, new theological persuasions. I recently became aware of something, I guess, that's very fast growing in America. It's called the New Apostolic Reformation, N-A-R. You can read about it. Apparently, it's been described as charismatic movement on adrenaline. Their concept is, today, there are modern-day apostles that are receiving supernatural new revelations from God that are from God and need to be equated almost as Scripture. There are places even close by up in Reading and others that follow this concept. Now, their misguided rule, and listen closely, here's what their rule of theology is. New revelations cannot contradict Scripture, but it can supplement Scripture. Now, friends, that is a blatant deception. You might, they, won't, they would do well to hear what God says. Here's what Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2. You shall not add unto the word which I command you. Nobody is to add to the word of God. Now, I've stated it before, but I say it again here this morning. If it's new, it's not true. Solomon, the wisest of Old Testament men, said in Ecclesiastes 1.9, There's nothing new under the sun. There's no new revelations from God. It doesn't work that way. New truth is really just old heresy dressed up different. God said, hold fast the form. The word form there is the English meaning is prototype. Prototype. A prototype is a model upon which something is patterned. It means pattern. God says that the gospel, the eternal gospel, as given in Scripture, is the prototype of, that everything should be measured by whether it be by precept or concept, whether it be by type or anti-type, everything we need for preaching and for living is found in Scripture. It's the prototype. It's the pattern. That's what he's saying here. Paul gave to Pastor Timothy, he said, here is the outline, here's the prototype, the gospel. Everything else that comes across your desk, measure it by this. This is the thing you need to hang on to. Don't abandon it ever. Because if you do, you're just going to be set adrift out there in a changing world. Can you imagine a, when we built all these wonderful buildings, we had these very intricate plans down so that you can't believe how uh, intricate they are. We had to have engineers, I mean, tens of thousands of dollars to get it all done. Can you imagine someone who is a builder just saying, well, you know what? 
I don't think these engineered uh, ideas are good. So they just kind of take their pencil and pencil it out, and they just write in something. They add to the prototype. They add to it. And then he gets out, and he says, Nah, I don't need my plumb line. I don't need any levels. I'm just going to eyeball it. Folks, that's what a lot of religions are doing today. They're just scratching out things with the plans. They're just kind of eyeballing. No, Paul said, you need the prototype. Follow the plans. What in the world's wrong with you? Then he says, not only hold fast the form, but he said, hold fast the form of sound words. The word sound there is the word, we, the English word for hygiene or clean or healthy. He said, don't get into all these unhealthy things. Hold fast to health-giving words. Now, I'm a meat and potatoes man, but I can tell you, when I was young, one thing I really loved when I was a kid, I loved cotton candy. Oh, my goodness. That's the most amazing stuff in all the world. I mean, one little bite, it's big, and then it just dissolves in your mouth, and it gives you that burst of wonderful taste, and it's just amazing. I don't ever eat cotton candy anymore. I just, I would die if I ate more than two bites, I'm sure. But here's what I'm afraid of today. Instead of meat and potatoes, instead of health-giving words, we've got a lot of cotton candy that's going on in the world. Sound words. Then what it says is words. The word is there for verbs. The We do have a nursery, by the way, if you need to, and our video out there. But anyway, sound words. You know, some people say that the words that we have are uh, archaic or they're out of date, like born again, like saved. My friend, they say we must use more sophisticated language in church to be uh, helpful to people. Friends, sometimes sophistication is no more than an amalgamation. It's just making an alley cat. We're not shoring up the definition. We're watering it down. Here's what John said when he was on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 3. He said, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. Hold fast. He said, The things you've received, hold them fast. The church at Sardis and Philadelphia both, and Stockton and Lodi and all Bible-believing churches are under attack as never before. That's why we must be constantly proactive to hold fast. In the days to come, it's not persecution that's going to be our greatest enemy, but infiltration. You know, many a times over the last hundred years, the devil has gotten into denominations and churches with apostasy. And I want to tell you, in these last days, apostasy is coming in like a flood. Just a little bit ago, hundreds of clergymen and laymen met in Miami for the National Council of Churches Assembly. They took a survey, and listen to, this is just one of the things they did. They found that only a little more than half of them even believed in the deity of Christ. That Jesus was in fact God. And we wonder why American religion is in the decline. Folks, it's as pulpit as people. Weak pulpit, weak people. Woke church, weak church, I will tell you for sure. You'd say, well, what should we do? I don't believe there's anything wrong with America that could not be solved if we had a generations of Bible-leaving people like here at the home church that would stand up and hold fast to the sound of, to the form of sound words. And may God help us always to hold on to the pattern, health, 
life-giving words that He's given us. Hold forth the word of life. Hold confidently to our salvation. Hold fast to sound doctrine. And number four, hold up your pastor. Hold up your pastor. I don't mean with a gun. I mean you need to hold him up. I know what some of you are thinking. Get behind our spiritual leaders. Philippians chapter 2, verse 29. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Now, please don't consider this to be a self-serving point here. The truth is I'm not the only pastor here, nor the only pastor this church will ever have. But it says here that we are to hold them in reputation. One paraphrase says it this way, they are deserving of a hero's welcome. Hold. It is an imperative command. It says we ought to value them highly. In this case, Paul was referring to a specific brother by the name of Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus is one of the most, not one of the most recognizable names, but he played a key role in biblical history. You may know who he was. He was the one who very faithfully, when Paul was in prison at Rome, and God, the Holy Spirit, gave him the manuscripts for the book of Philippians, he then took that to that church. Imagine if you had the original manuscript, and it was your job to take it to the church. This man, Epaphroditus, he was a leader. He was a spiritual leader, probably a pastor. He was Mr. Getter Done. Now, the word hold such in reputation means hold them in high regard or value. They are a special prize to the church, as it were. Now, the Bible says we ought to honor all men, but especially spiritual leaders. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders, pastor that rule well, be counted worthy of double honor. Because the fact is, people like Epaphroditus were few and far between. Back to chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 30, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life. When the Bible says not regarding his life, it just means he really laid down everything for Jesus. He put his hopes, his dreams, his financial goals, all in the back seat for the cause of Christ. When I graduated from good old Clary Union High School, because of decent grades and financial need, I was given a full-ride scholarship to Loma Linda University in Riverside for the pre-med program. Before I was to start, I decided to take one year of Bible college. Well, in that fateful year, that's when God called me to preach. Now, it would have been a privilege to serve in the field of medicine. I would have enjoyed it. And I'm sure, because I didn't do so, I probably missed out on some things in life. But God had other plans. And now I'm a doctor of internal medicine in the truest sense of the word. And I couldn't be happier or more fulfilled. And, but Paul was saying, look, there is a giving up of things that happen. Paul reminded the church, again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. I'll just look at verse 13. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. One paraphrase says it this way. Overwhelm them with appreciation and love. I love what happened on the Isle of Malta in Acts chapter 28. Aged Paul was there. He was on his way to Rome on his final trip. And it says, they honored us with many honors. you got to love it. Honored us with many honors. They were absolutely just pouring blessing after blessing on the Apostle Paul. And let me say, in the last several years, American pastors have faced significant challenges. 
In some cases, church attendance has never come back from the government overreach against churches in the, during the pandemic. Inflation has tightened budgets. At the same time, all the changes in culture, like the demonic LBGTQ movement, pastors are struggling with things like, what in the world's going on? You'd say, well, what can I do to support my pastor? Well, there's one good thing that every pastor I know covets, and that is the prayers of his people. Now, everybody expects the pastor to pray for them, of course. But pastors need prayer, too. Let me give you seven ways to pray for your pastor. And if you didn't get the outline, you can get it afterwards here. Or you can go online or go on the app, and uh, you can get all the things there. It's a simple prayer plan, and it's really good because it comes from a guy named the Apostle Paul. So you're going to like this. Sunday. Pray for God to use your pastor as he preaches the Word of God. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may have free course. Sunday is a day of labor. It is a day of spiritual attack. Pray that God would help your pastor be faithful to the Word. I will tell you, every good pastor goes to the pulpit with a heavy weight on his spirit because he knows that someday he is going to stand before an almighty God and give account for what he said. And that's exactly why the Apostle Paul said, be not many teachers, you don't understand. Number two, on Monday, pray for God to protect your pastor from every enemy, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked people. Folks, there are unreasonable people that are trying to attack a family, his wife, God, help him and protect him. Tuesday, pray for God to lead your pastors. He leads others. Second Timothy chapter 2 says, I submit, I exhort that prayers be made for all that are in authority. There's a wide array of people in every service. A pastor preaches to 5-year-olds and 95-year-olds. And he needs the wisdom of God and the Holy Spirit to work. As, and we need to pray for him Wednesday. Pray for God to give your pastor divine appointments and spiritual power. With all praying for us, that God would open us a door of utterance that we could speak the mysteries of Christ as we ought to speak. The fact of the matter is, pastors do talk a lot to other people. Pray that God would give him true godly wisdom. On Thursday, pray for God to help your pastor as he deals with problems. Here, Paul said, you know that this shall turn my salvation, turn to my salvation, an answer to my problems, and a supply of the Spirit. The fact of the matter is, pastors deal with problems all the time. But pastors have problems too. And they're people. And they need God to help them. Friday, pray for pastors' personal growth and blessing. That's why the writer of Hebrews, Paul, most likely, pray for us. Pray for us. We trust we have a good conscience and in all things willing to live honestly. The fact of the matter is, pastors fight the flesh just like anybody else. Pray a hedge of protection around your pastor. Ask God to keep him pure of mind and pure of body. And then on Saturday, pray for your pastor as he prepares to minister. Pray for me, he said. Please, for me, that utterance may be given, that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray for Saturdays. Saturday is crunch day for every pastor. The way the ministry is piling up, Paul said, I stand between the living and the dead. He said, who is able to do such a thing? Pauline shared with me about a month ago or so 
a heart-touching little video that she had seen. I was unable to find it. I'd love to share it with you, but here's what she told me. She said that, that she saw this it's a short clip, but it was a quite older pastor who was struggling to stand in the pulpit. He wanted desperately to speak freely, but he was just having a hard time even standing because of his age. Well, a young assistant saw that, and the young assistant walked up, put his arms around the older pastor, held him the entire time he was preaching, and he said, you go for it, pastor, and held him there. Now, I hope that uh, it doesn't come to that. But if it does, I know we got some good men around here that you're big enough to hold, I think, about three pastors. And thank God for you. But here's one way you can always put your arms around your pastor. Pray these seven things. Pray all week long. And then finally, the fifth thing you should never let go of is hope. Never let go of hope. Keep your dreams. Keep your expectations. But even more than that, Hebrews 6.18 It says we have a strong consolation as believers. What is it? That is, we have, we want to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Now, some people have no hope. Hopelessness, they has been said, is the saddest word in the human language. For other people, they have hope, but it's a false hope. It's been said that false hope is clung to with all one's might until a day comes when it has sucked the heart dry and forcibly breaks it. My friend, there is false hope. There is no hope. But then there is strong hope. That is Bible hope. What is Bible hope? Well, it is certainty. What is, what is it that we're certain of? Here's what Titus 2 and verse 13 says. Looking for that blessed hope. What does hope mean in the Bible? Well, it doesn't mean maybe. In the English language, we say, well, I hope so, and that means we would like it to happen, but we're not sure. But in the Bible language, it means certainty. And that's why it says it's a consolation. It's an actual anticipation that it's going to happen. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king hold on to hope. Now more than ever, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says, We ought to assemble ourselves together. That's the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out and assemble, as the manner some is, don't forsake it, but exhorting whether and so much the more. Why? As you see the day coming, the return of Christ. Folks, Jesus Christ is coming soon, and we ought to be more in the house of God than ever before. And I want to speak to some of you that are listening by means of live stream and recorded video. We are grateful that you're watching. Very grateful to God for it. But let me be clear about something. If you think that is a substitute for in-person attendance, you are sadly mistaken. My friend, going to church is what God has called us to do. It is. Now you say, well, what is this for? It's for those who've never been to church. and They're checking it out. That's a good thing. Or for some who, because of medical reasons or other, they can't be in church. But if you can be, you should be, friend. Some have said this. Some go to church three times. When they're hatched, when they're matched, and when they're dispatched. The first time they throw water, the second time they throw rice, and the third time they throw dirt. 
Friend, don't wait to come to church until they're throwing dirt in your face because you're dead. That's crazy. Did you know that when you come to church, you're saying two marvelous things? First of all, you're saying, God is important to me, and I believe He's coming soon. And the second thing you're saying is, people are important to me. My brothers and sisters matter. And notice what it says. The so much the more as the day is coming. Are we more convinced that Christ is coming or less? More or less? More. Then the Bible says we ought to be more around the things of God because Christ is coming. And I will tell you, there is no better place. In fact, there's pretty much, it's the only place that our families can get truth, can get someone who loves them and cares for them. I know schools try to do the best they can. Some of them do, some of them don't. But friend, there is no other place. Get your child in a Bible-believing church and under this beautiful music and people that love them and try to protect them. Grandparents, let's see what we can do to help these young people. Because Jesus is coming soon. I want to be faithful. I'm holding on to hope. That's exactly why I'm faithful in church. The best acronym I've ever seen for the word hope, H-O-P-E, is this. Hold on. Pain ends. Hold on. Pain ends. And it will. When our glorious King breaks through the clouds... All pain for every believer will be gone. But I'm afraid to say that's not the same for those who do not know Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning for some reason, and if I were to ask you the question like I asked that dear Catholic priest, are you 100% sure that if you died, you'd go to heaven? Do you know? I hope you know. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning. Our hope is built on Jesus Christ. He is our hope. Nothing else. Our companies are going to come. We're going to sing a well-known and beautiful old hymn. And now I'm going to give you a chance. I hope you'll just stop for a moment and you'll think about where you're at in your Christian life. These five things, hold on to them forever. There are some things we should definitely let go of. But there are five things that we should hold on to forever. I hope you will. Let's all stand if you would, please. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.